0: Hello and welcome to Climate Change, Why Haven't We Solved It Yet, a podcast from the University of East Anglia. I'm Ayushi Avasti, an energy economist and PhD student at UEA. We're nearly two-thirds of the way through our long journey into understanding the different factors behind climate change, and we've heard from some expert voices along the way. In the last episode, we also heard that some policymakers are working hard, especially in Europe, to try to put solutions in place to safeguard all of our futures. But are we moving quickly enough? Remember, in episode 1, we talked about the 36 billion tons of carbon space we have left, which at the current rate we will exhaust in 25 years. Well, if that's the case, then surely we aren't moving very fast. So the question to ask now is, how do we accelerate the efforts and how can we do so as individuals? Should we all be out protesting on the streets? Should we write to our MPs? How much of a difference will all this make? And why is everyone suddenly interested in zombie movies? Our guest today is Dr. Esther Darshini Associate Professor at UEA's School of Education, who has studied the school strikes for climate. She talks us through how these strikes have made a difference and how climate change impacts us as individuals and as a society. So over to Esther. Enjoy. So hello, Dr. Priyadarshini, and welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Aishi, for inviting me. <laughs> So, I mean, we always start our podcast with a little bit of um, getting to know our guests. So, what did you study? How did you get interested in this uh, topic of climate change? Okay, all right. I'll 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 keep it brief. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. So, I've I studied uh, my undergraduate and postgraduation in in India, and I worked there for a few years in. Bangalore and in Bombay and then I wanted to continue studying. I missed uh, being a student so I came to the UK to do my PhD. So I did my PhD in a kind of interdisciplinary kind of uh, unit. So I did a little bit of education and a little bit of management education. So it was a it was a nice little mix. So and by the time I finished my PhD, I knew I really wanted to be in the field of education. That was what drew me. So I ended up at UEA and I work uh, as an associate professor in education at the moment. Yeah. Right. And you've written
0: um, some books.
1: Yeah. Well yes actually exciting if if all goes to plan <laughs> in a couple of months um uh, one of my books that i wrote over the last couple of years will be coming out uh, and it is it does look at the whole um current um uh, epoch as we call it the anthropocene as we are now calling it and it looks at what lessons we can learn and how we can imagine different alternative futures. So that's that's really what the book oh. is, Pedagogies of the Post-Anthropocene. So looking beyond this current epoch, which is so dominated. I mean, it's a whole uh, geological age, isn't it, which we are now calling the Anthropocene. And it really... Uh, can be overwhelming because it sounds like you know it's it's a whole geological epoch that's uh, defined by human activity and not all of it good most of it quite bad so how do we how do we imagine different futures alternative futures and what are the lessons we can learn towards making those futures materialize and come true okay so that's that's kind of like the broad um interest uh, of mine at the moment yeah
0: Right, I mean, it's a little bit like Marvel movies. they're thinking about what if Iron Man was made was was rescued by somebody else, and it's it's something similar, but Absolutely. our world,
1: <laughs> yeah, the what if that, that is a really good thing you've picked on, yeah, the what if scenario is really what we're uh, encouraging people to think about, and that's really how i got into climate change and all of the current movements because one of my interests is in trying to understand education as a a process which can help us desire better and desire different things and different futures not the same old same old but you know how do we envisage and you know uh, alternatives for the future and how can we materialize them right so and what role can education play in this So rather than, you know, the old fashioned view of thinking of education as preparing people for a job or, you know, how to fit within the current system. How can we think of education as a process for changing the system? And that's how I got drawn into um, sort of examining the school climate strikes movement of 2019, really. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay. So maybe we should just start with that. Do you want to? Do you want to tell us about the school climate strikes and how is it that the young people are so involved in this movement? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in some senses, it's
1: not surprising that uh, uh, young people are leading the fourth, You know, the, the, this movement. And I'm not even talking about young people from 18 to 25. I'm talking about children in schools. They are children. Technically legally and uh they the the school climate strike movement sort of uh it went viral i think we can say in 2019 oh bad choice of words but um (laughs) um there's often a lot of uh, you know um it's a kind of uh, a myth that um you know greta thunberg um really started that there's this is the narrative that that this is what started the climate strike movement but actually there have been previous attempts by school children to hold um you know a a movement a strike movement that captures the media attention that captures people's attention and raises awareness about climate change and uh but i have we have to admit that it was the um um 2019 is the year that it really took off in a big way, and we have to credit Greta for that. But there's been a long history before that of Indigenous peoples uh, um you know people young children from uh, very you know less developed countries who have tried this before but it somehow never really took off but this you know 2019 brilliant it was wonderful just pre covid that uh, it really did capture people's uh, imaginations uh, and it uh, th- there's evidence now uh, that it did raise people's awareness of the uh, the, the, the 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 emergency, the crisis that that we are now facing and that we ought to take action. So yeah, it, it was it was very interesting for me to to study that particular movement, to look at the kind of messages that the young people were putting forward, but also what other people who are stu- you know uh, other scholars who are studying this movement, what they have to say about it. Um, so yeah, it was very um, very rich. A lot of things came out of it, actually. <laughs> um, I wonder if I should just maybe pick one or two things that, that really struck home for me. Uh, uh-huh. movement. Uh, so one thing was that, it, what was interesting was that young people were, they were showing a willingness, that they were acknowledging that there is a problem and that it is their future. It is, after all, their future. It's not the future of the previous generations. They are going to have to live through this future. And if it becomes unsustainable, uh, they're the ones who are going to inherit that. So uh, they were showing a willingness to sort of take this on and uh, highlight it and and kind of raise people's awareness about it, even though they had no, they have no other ways. they have no access to levers of power. they can't vote you know these, <laughs> so so how else do you do you um, you know create an atmosphere? for change. So this was, I think that it worked really well. And there is evidence that awareness did go up. uh, But they also, uh, there were little things in that by following that movement over the year that I learned, which is, they are very, very keen that we we link um, knowledge, learning with moral action. So it's not like we don't know what causes climate change. It's not Mm -hmm. like know what the solutions are (laughs) we Mm -hmm. know this but what is missing is is uh, action there's a bit of apathy uh, the lack of action and this is uh, what they want they want so for me what I learned was they want a form of education they don't just want a lot of information about the science behind uh, climate change we do need that but they want a bit more than that. They want to know, well, let's study the implications of it. What What are the actions we need to take? So they want mm-hmm. to acknowledge and action. And I, for me, this is a very hopeful thing in such a dire, you know, it's easy to be so overwhelmed by the facts of climate change. And for me, this movement felt very hopeful because they were trying to lead and show, show leadership in, in, at a time when uh, things can appear quite dire and dark. So, yeah, that, 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 w- that was a huge positive.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I find that very interesting that they want, you know, your actions to meet the rhetoric. Like everybody says, oh, climate change is our priority, but action has to meet the rhetoric. Otherwise, it really is another speech. Yeah, some
1: of the slogans that, you know, this is what I studied, some of the placards that they were carrying dur- during the marches were very, were speaking directly, they were funny, some were sad, some were, you know, there were all kinds of messages, but it, the, the real, the real um message that hit home for me was they were saying well why should we get educated why should we go to school and get educated if you won't listen to the educated so you know that, there mm. was such an irrefutable logic to the, those kinds of slogans and uh, yeah and I think that's why uh, and because they were so young you know below the age of 18 and they used like settings like schools they, these were young people who left You know, their schools on particular Friday afternoons and gathered in the cities and town centres. So um, they put, for me as an educator, it's really interesting that they used the schools in ways that we've never really (laughs) planned for them to be used. So yeah, a a lot of a lot of uh, good hopeful messages uh, came out of that for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's yeah, because normally universities have been the place for resistance and. And schools, uh, to my knowledge, have not. So that, of course, is, uh, I think, one of the biggest things that came out. Um, but do you think this, this messaging and anger was around just the young and maybe not just the children, but the young? And as a society, do you think have we accepted climate crisis as a crisis? Has it, do you think it's percolated everywhere?
1: I think we can say that definitely the awareness has shot up over the last few years. Mm -hmm. There's a long way still to go. I still, um, you know, um, working in a university bubble, you meet other researchers and people who are already very heavily invested in this. So, you know, it's different from uh, (laughs) the world outside. And there still needs to be a lot more work done, I think, to raise awareness about how serious the, 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 the issue is. And... Um, possibly this is where people like Greta Thunberg and lots of other young activists uh, played their part in um, it, it, definitely raising awareness uh, much more. But now, OK, so awareness is going up still needs to go up much more but now there's an urgency for action as well so it'll be interesting to see over the next year or two especially with COP and you know what follows what actions people are actually going to take what the especially governments uh, institutions which have the power to make changes large-scale big changes in society it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it
0: yeah and and related to this Culturally, there's a lot of, um, I mean, in the world of entertainment, this is what the young people are consuming. There's a lot of uh, movies on zombie apocalypse and post-apocalyptic scenarios. Yes. Do you, I mean, it sometimes makes me a little nervous. Is this what the youth are expecting our future will be?
1: Mm. It is a bit worrying, isn't it? I mean, I think it was just two days ago there was a survey on um, you know what young people expect of their futures and it was a bit dire you know they it, I think the survey showed that most young people don't have a very positive view of the future and can we blame them <laughs> mm. uh, so uh, I think um, the I think okay so I think you've touched on a really big issue at the moment which is how do we find hope at this point really um, and you um, I, I don't think we should condemn um, the sort of darker dystopian apocalyptic visions of the future, because, you know, scholars who've studied this whole genre, yeah, of of uh, in cultural studies, they will tell you that. Um, there's a lot to learn from this way of thinking about the future. You know, these stories or these narratives can act as a warning and they can expose to us what we don't want. You know, they can paint a vision of the world that we can look at and then say, okay, that's not what we want. We want something else. So, it's a, it, there are so many uses of post-apocalyptic or dystopian fiction. And they're also entertaining. Let's not forget yeah. that. So, so, so there is something to be said for that. But at the same time, I think at, the, at this point, we now want, um, like I said, if we want uh, actions to be taken and uh, for the whole system to be changed, these are massive, you know, huge, revolutionary kind of ideas. Uh, and uh, naturally, people will feel sort of restless and impatient because the rate or the pace of change is too slow. We all feel that. We want, we need things to be happening much faster. And so it's quite right that people feel re- restless or angry or take to the streets or, uh, you know, be activist in very, very different ways. But we also see that there are a lot of um, people who... Um, well, let's let's take let's continue with the with this theme of young people, you know, a lot of young people who are doing interesting things, who are showing us um, uh, things to look at, to be inspired by, and to do things differently, you know, so we have lots of young naturalists. We have, I mean, I could name a few. There's Dara McNulty. there's uh, uh, Myros Craig bird girl as she's called so there's a lot of young people who are able to who are also inspiring in their own way so it's not all doom and gloom and they're able to show that you know there is a certain there is you know for these young naturalists at least there's a there's a spark in nature there's, they're able to find joy or a sense of wonder or awe in nature and they're able to you know invest in that and you know rewilding projects all sorts of things they they they're into and and these are you know those little uh, sparks of light that we can see in the world around us and i think this is it we we need to perhaps what we need is to you know have a new aesthetic a new way of valuing what's beautiful or what's important for us as in a society but this needs to Uh, you know, everyone needs to find their own thing. We're we're all different, so (laughs) we can't expect everyone to be inspired by the same things. But there is a lot out there. So I would say it's not all doom and gloom. And um, there is is plenty to be inspired by, uh, especially many of the young people, are again, showing leadership in this area. So,
0: hey, yeah, what's not to like about this? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Okay so that there, there must be some hidden hope in this <laughs> gloom but um but going forward in this in this atmosphere where you know it's a very highly charged atmosphere i feel like with the young feeling this anger mm. um and where this anger comes from uh okay maybe if i ask you about that so do you think they think that the social contract is broken completely like they have nothing to expect mm. from the previous generation
1: well yeah it would seem that way doesn't <laughs> would yeah it? but let's 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 look at it i mean um let's take one part of the social contract, which could be the intergenerational contract. So Mm -hmm. typically, this is unsaid, but this is true of all cultures, almost all over the world, that we think every generation ought to leave something good for the next, the, the one that follows. Yes, we want our progeny, our youngsters to have a better quality of life. And this might be a generation currently, the young, who feel that this is not the case anymore. Yeah, so they they might be the first generation who feel well, you know, my grandfathers seem to have uh, inherited, you know, a. A planet which was in a much healthier state than we are. So there is this contract that has been broken, I think, and they're quite right to feel uh, upset about it. Why wouldn't they? Um, they they can, and alongside that, they may also feel disenfranchised because they're not near the levers of power. They can't make change happen very quickly. So there are very good reasons for um, uh, anger or, you know, uh, these emotions, anxiety, (laughs) let's talk about eco-anxiety, which is uh, making, you know, news headlines every day. And it's a real thing. And it's something that we all, we all experience. So um, I think rather than sort of condemn or um, somehow ignore these negative emotions. I think it's our duty, especially as the older generations, to to actually engage with it and say, well, what is going on, and you know, w- w- what can we do differently, uh, rather than, you know, uh, too often we have a, a way of dismissing these 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 concerns. I think. Uh, yeah that that would be my take on this situation
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah let's not brush it under the carpet absolutely yeah because a a lot of people taking the social contract forward for instance a lot of young people talk about not having children because of the eco-anxiety they feel and that really I feel like brings the like if Mm -hmm. that is not a manifestation of um, an apocalyptic (laughs) scenario I don't know what is
1: yeah, yeah. No, I think that is a very. Again, the, the, these stories have been hitting the headlines this last week a lot, haven't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure you, you're you're you, you know you're referencing the same headlines that that talked about these. But um, again, this is my point. Okay, so on the one hand, yes, things do seem serious, and not seems they are serious. Okay. Yeah. So we need to acknowledge that. We also need to acknowledge this um, anger or sort of um, disillusionment from the young because things are not moving as fast or as quickly as they should. Uh, and at the and, and alongside all of this, we, as I will keep insisting that um, there is there are different futures for us to to be making. You know, that's what we yeah. should be focusing on and trying to think of. Um, uh, changes in a very uh, you know in a sort of enjoyable way as well so quite often I think people get dragged down by the fact that um, say if you're part of any green movement that you know you have to stop uh, enjoying life somehow that there are too many negatives you know mm-hmm. so you, you give up meat eating you give up flying you give up give up give up so there's a long list of things that you can't have but on the other hand you know what are the things that you're gaining the, these you know the, the, there is a lot to be gained you know a better quality of life a better um planet you know fewer species extinction these are massive gains that are that are there on the other hand so i think we need to balance these things out the the, the situation is always a bit dark and a bit you know a bit of light and we need to not forget that these moments there is a bigger and a grander vision of the future that there is to be built as well uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, this is this is my bag if you like that education should really seriously be looking at these issues and um, making it part of the formal <laughs> formal systems of education where young people
0: participate every day yeah Right. Okay. So, I mean, it would have been my next question that education in itself, what, what are they, have we, are we doing enough on that front to make sure that we are taking this anger, which is currently on the streets and not in school where it should be, Mm. and giving them some sort of tools to manage not only the anxieties, but also like, okay, these are how, this is how you manage the levers of power, like, speak to your MPs, things like that. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there are, okay, my prediction, if I had to make one for the next few years, is that there is going to be uh, quite a shift in what we emphasize in education. I hope so anyway, okay. Mm -hmm. So, as I said before earlier, you know, the emphasis is not just about The curriculum, the content or how well we know not things, but what we do with that knowledge. Okay, so the emphasis has to shift there. The other part of it is that I think um, we can emphasise within education the the many positives, the many uh, joyful things that are there when we go down this path of trying to envision better futures or different futures. Um, so for instance, even the, the marches, the, you know, the climate strikes, I didn't see them as negative at all. I saw them as a really positive expression of emotion. Uh, there, Yes, of course there was anger, but there was also humor. There was also that they had, you know, people read out poetry, people were, <laughs> were, were doing little mini, um, setting up mini um art installations in the city center here in Norwich I've seen that so uh, it's it's not it's not just a negative thing that that when when young people come out of schools and they go on these strikes it's not just all negative there's a lot of positives and what i would like to see is that education somehow is able to capture that 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 sense of hope and emotion in a more within the formal institutions as well Okay so that, so this this is where we need to go i think. Um yeah um yeah that's my hope. Let's 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 watch this space.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean another question we talked about um not to keep going back to this um social contract but across generations there are many things that we're trying to do um and decolonizing a lot of narratives is another, uh, is another question, and you spoke earlier about how a lot of uh, people before Greta tried to pop- popularize climate strikes, but they were not able to. So then there there seems to be uh, inequality, even as we exist today, between different countries where some people's actions are seen better. So is there an argument for decolonizing the climate debate?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, the answer has to be yes. (laughs) Yes, always yes. Uh, And I do think, see, the thing is, I do, there are two issues here. So one is, how does the climate change movement or the movement to create a better world, how does it get built in a way that is inclusive of all kinds of people? As you pointed out, most of the people who will um, actually suffer from Uh, climate change effects are those who are some of the poorest people in the poorest you know sort of nations if you like so how can this movement uh take into account all of these views and how can it change and i i do i do get a sense that this is this is very much um in the forefront this is not something that's um sidelined in any of the the big organizations that are looking at uh, um, you know, new green movements. But I think what's really also interesting is how sometimes uh, the media represents uh, these movements. So, for instance, you know, we know there's been a lot of conversations about how new environmental movements are very white, middle class, middle aged, uh, and therefore, somehow that this is not <laughs> a serious thing. So, you know, that is a myth that we should challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. There are people uh, right across the world, as I said, Indigenous communities who've been fighting for this for for their very lives for a very long time. So this is not just a posh people's, you know, movement, as some people seem to think. But the media also sometimes, well, very famously... Um, they cropped out Vanessa Nakate, the Ugandan, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, climate activist out of a photograph uh, and they only centered the, the sort of more white looking uh, activists. And so so, so so the media does have a role to play here. It needs to, um, you know, find ways of of representing all of these voices so so it so what we're able to see today i think is not the full picture there is a lot going on but not all of it is represented in a way that we can understand and access so some of this is to do with uh, the media there are also i think some good criticisms that have been made about climate movements or, you know, new green environmental movements that they are, especially in countries like the UK or the USA, whether they don't include, they're very white and they, they don't include minorities, uh, they, they're not attractive. And there is something here that they, these, these organizations do need to address. You know, for instance, some young black activists have told us that, you know, strategies that are you you know, like for instance, courting arrest or stopping the daily commute. These may be strategies that are very good to get to capture media attention, but they are not very attractive to large populations of black or minority ethnic people who have a very different relationship with the law and justice system. (laughs) They're not going Mm -hmm. to court arrest. This is the last thing that they want to do. It's not attractive, this kind of strategy. So I think that, that there's a lot that can be done in these movements to to make it much more inclusive and, uh, you know, uh, to change how they do, they are doing things, but this does not, this is my point, is it doesn't mean that the movement is essentially white and middle class, uh, it's not, this is a global movement and sometimes we, it, the, it's just not visible to us, what is made visible to us is uh, quite a white-oriented media output sometimes, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I have other guests also who spoke from a very different perspective uh-huh. about media, uh, and somebody said it's almost criminal how bad media has been talking mm-hmm. about um, well climate change across different countries. So this uh, person, Dr. Huck is from Bangladesh and he speaks about how they don't highlight. Um, disasters in the global south as much as a flash flood in Germany. Absolutely. So it's it's very interesting that these points are coming across uh, different... different. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, okay. So one question is also on um, how we're interacting with each other these days and um, the focus on individual behavior, like you recycle, you if you don't eat vegan, you're not my friend. Um, and I, I don't know if, if there is a way to, I mean, if there is a message to give to young people that, um, we have to do as much as we can, but not to the point of, <laughs> it's not worth breaking our friendship so <laughs> Oh
1: yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite the mood of these days, isn't it? Whether it's culture wars of one kind or the other. Well, I do. Okay. I, this. This would be what I would think. I think uh, change. We all we're we're all obliged to take responsibility and take action. Okay, at this point, so whether that's eating a uh, little less meat than last week, or. Mm-hmm. or Buying less, uh, or um, you know, biking rather than driving. I don't know. There are many, many small and individual uh, acts of everyday life that we can all do. And I think we should all see ourselves as being in the same boat and doing our best. Okay. So rather than tell somebody, you know, you if if you are not, um, uh, you know, following a particular dietary, um, you know, rules, you you are not committed. Rather than go down that road. just if everyone just tries to do a little bit better, this would be amazing. But my my thing is this is all very good. And it's really important that we get this shift, you know, this sort of social and cultural shift in our and how we live our everyday lives. But I do, I don't want to let the policymakers and the organized you know the big organizations who have real power to make massive changes off the hook. Okay. I don't want to let them off the hook because If you just looked back a few years ago, you know, people used to smoke in pubs. It was just the done thing. Even going back beyond that, people never used seatbelts in cars. These were, you know, massive changes that happened literally overnight in, in many cases because governments were able to, you know, push through these legislative changes. So where are they now? I, I think this is where we have to see the big changes. We can all do our very best in our own ways, in our own lives. But this this is this is much bigger than that.
0: Yeah. Well, Dr. Pradashni, it's been an amazing conversation. This, I, I've loved this uh, cross-cutting conversation. But there's always a last question that I stump my guests with. It's the question that I never sent across. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the question is very simple. Dr. Pridarshni, why do you think we've not solved climate change yet?
1: Um, okay, I'm sure many of you guests, you've asked this of them, and they've all responded in different ways, because there is no one answer to this. I do think apathy is the one that always comes to my mind. Uh, because climate change and its implications are so big and overwhelming, it, like, uh, I think it was amitabh Ghosh who called it the ungraspable. You know, it, it's so huge, this, this, the implications of cr- climate change. If you, if you spend even a very short time trying to understand it, you quickly get overwhelmed. And I think this is it. So not being able to grasp this, the, the magnitude of this has... Uh, led to a lot of apathy um, but there are also vested interests let's say. <laughs> let's be open about that so there's a lot of resistance to change um, because of these things uh, and again I would come back to the young people that I spent time studying they the reason they gave me hope was they showed that it is quite possible to grasp this ungraspable okay this is this is not beyond our uh, limits as as a, a you know as humans if you like to to look at this and to address this yes it's big yes it's difficult but it's not impossible and um so yeah that's it's it's huge but it's not impossible to address uh, and but we need to get our skates on i think
0: <laughs> yeah. get your skates on <laughs> thank you for that great answer <laughs> no no apathy that's the last thing we need yes thank you Dr. Pradeshini, for coming to this podcast it was lovely to have you here oh thank you thank you ayushi and good luck with the rest of your speakers I hope you enjoyed this chat with Dr. Priyadarshini. She has a very eclectic set of publications and I would encourage you to give her page a read on the UEA website. Just search UEA Esther Priyadarshini. And do please let us know what you think. Do we need to decolonize the discourse? Write to me at a.awasthy at uea.ac.uk or tweet at me at... T-H-E underscore Y-U-S-H-I. The Yushi. I always love to hear your views, questions and comments. The podcast is on iTunes, Spotify, and you can find us by searching UEA Climate Change. Don't forget to give us a subscribe while you're there. Until we meet again, keep the hope.